So for 10 years, I traveled all over North America, America and Canada, and competed in different local, regional, and international events with Poetry Slam and Performance Poetry, which is all original work that you create and perform. And so I used that as a platform to share the gospel with thousands of people, English-speaking people, um, all over the Northern Hemisphere, and um, got to, the Lord opened a lot of doors a couple of times. I ended up second in the world in the women's international division in this type of competition. And then by the time we moved back to Albania seven years ago, the last five years I've been the artistic director of the Capitals uh, Arts and Culture Center, Tirana Cultural Center, which has a, th a public theater and a folk ensemble. Uh, dedicated to upholding the song and dance tra tra traditions of the Albanian people. And the last uh, five years, I have produced over 150, 200 works um, of theater and uh, translated over 25 of them from English to Albanian, including works like The Diary of Anne Frank and about five different Shakespeare plays. So um, since 16, I've, I've been... Uh, providing simultaneous translation for missionaries, both from the pulpit and everyday life. I speak Albanian in both dialects, um, English, Italian, and I have a working reading knowledge of Spanish, German, and some conversational modern Greek. I hold an uh, associate in educational theater, a, bachelor's, a bachelor of arts in theater, a master's of science in public administration and strategic planning and nonprofit management. But what things were gained to me those I counted loss for Christ. Yet doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things that do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him not of my own righteousness and accomplishments, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which, of God, which is of God by faith. So regardless if I stand here and recite you know, my resume, there will always be somebody who's more academically inclined, better at languages, better at literature, better management and translation. So the question is, what does qualify me for this work? So I want to briefly point three things. First of all, what qualifies me to do this work is the fact that on December 24, 1995, the Spirit of God met my heart with all the fury of His love and revealed to me my true condition, a hell-bound sinner with a wicked heart in desperate need of a Savior. That day, I surrendered my life not only to accept the gift of salvation and escape from hell, but to the Lordship of Christ, trusting only on His finished work on the cross and His blood. And from that day, I placed myself under the authority of His Word for all matters of life and godliness. And of course, I was 15 years old when I did this, for the young and over there, so I did not use those big words, but I said something like, you are right about everything, and I'm wrong about everything. Your way, your terms, not mine. And that foundation of faith has never been shaken, no matter what the highs and lows and twists and turns of my life have been. Sure, I've fallen on my face many times. My feet have gotten dirty in the path of this road of, of the road of life. But not for one day have I doubted the solid foundation of the authority, absolute authority of the Word of God in my life. And I believe that that is the number one qualification you need to have for this job, is the heart attitude. For we are not as many who corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. 
And I'm confident in this truth because it is God who will do the work. As long as I never waver from that condition of surrender, humility, fear and trembling, and remember that he has placed his word above all his name. That is God who gave the word, although great is the company of them that published it. It is God who does the work if the vessel is willing. And then the second thing that um, I believe qualifies me to this work is a unique glimpse of God's glory that I've been afforded in my life. I want to read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah has a vision, he sees the Lord in the temple, and I wonder when he came to, after this vision, if he looked around, if he was alone, or if he had other people, and said, am I the only one who saw this? Because of the trajectory of life that the Lord has allowed us to have, I have been privileged above my fellow countrymen to have a unique glimpse of God's glory through his perfect word, the King James Bible. When Isaiah sees this, image, this uh, vision, he is moved, he's humbled, he's burdened by what he saw. How can he keep this to himself? My heroes in my 20s, where I moved to the United States and learned about the King James Bible, were Erasmus and Tydale and Wycliffe, the Anabaptists and the Waldenses and the Moravians. My heroes were the missionaries of the Philadelphian Church Age. My role models are the Chiriazi sisters, and a definite work that has shaped my life is Dr. Gail Ripplinger's New Age versions, Dr. Vance's work, and Brown Donovan's preaching. And when you get a glimpse of God's movement through the ages to produce that book, that has been given to us in the palm of our hands, that we can put it under our pillow or in our purses or on the dashboard of our cars. I have no other option but to say, nobody else in my country sees this. Here I am, send me. Because I want every Albanian believer to have the same glimpse of God's glory that I've been granted in 23 years of reading, studying, and applying the perfect word of God in my life. I do not want exclusivity on it. I, I hate the Nicolaitans. I don't want to be one of them. Someone who has a higher the exclusive understanding of a thing that is not shared with others. I want to shout it from every Albanian mountaintop. I want the arms of my precious brothers that stand sacrificially behind pulpits every Sunday in our beloved country to be strengthened as they preach out of an uncompromised word of God. I want every Albanian sister in Christ to have a book that they can raise Samuels and Timothys from. I want every Albanian child in my local church in Bathora who has been raised in poverty, violence, broken homes, and little to no access to education to still be able to hear the words of the Lord and read from God's book and know that Jesus is enough. Amen. 
And the third thing that qualifies me for this work is you. In 25 years of walking with Christ, God has put us in the living and breathing network of Bible-believing churches who are sensitive to God's work and His movement. Your prayers, your sacrificial giving, your support, your resources that you surrender to God, your labors in the same fields is what emboldens and enables me. And I want to say just the wealth of research and scholarly resources that have been placed in our hands just the last couple of days. And I wish Brother Jim was here tonight because I wanted to publicly thank him for everything he's already provided. But last night as he brought a bunch of things uh, over at the house and he was so excited and sharing with us, I thought maybe that's what young Solomon felt when he was burdened with the task of building the temple of the Lord. Just a young man, okay, full of God's wisdom, but still a scary thought, never been done before, to build the temple. And then the wise father, David, pulls him to the side and says, here, son, here are the blueprints, and here's the materials. And by the way, here's a bunch of older folk that have been around with me for many years who will be here to help you. So now, my son, the Lord be with thee, and prosper thou, and build the house of the Lord thy God, as he has said with thee. In conclusion, I want to say this work is not optional because the glory of the Lord deserves it and the Albanian people desperately need it. So here I am, send me. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Thank you. All right. We will see you guys tomorrow night. This was it. <laughs> Thank you again. I just want to iterate. All of you have, have encouraged us and have said all, all the kind words that, that you have about this. Uh, it, it's truly a blessing to see the people of God doing what only God can do. And I just want to say it's a blessing to be here. It's, it's a really great encouragement to be here. I want us tonight to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. I want to see together some verses, the eight first verses from Nehemiah chapter 8 in a message that I have entitled, The Magnified Word. I'll begin reading verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning till midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood a lot of people that I can't pronounce their names. <laughs> but if you're expecting, that's a great list to, if you want to be biblical. <laughs> Verse 5, and, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Joshua 
and all of these other people, again, excuse me for skipping, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave, gave, the, sense, gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Tonight, I want to talk about five characteristics of what a proper understanding of the Word of God does. First of all, a proper understanding of God's Word fulfills God's intention. God's intention is for the Bible to be understood. The Bible is not a forbidden book. It is God's Word and God's desire for everyone to have a relationship with Him. And God desires for everyone to understand what His words say and what do they mean. One of the things that many people are, are uh, afraid or tempted or, or shy when it comes to the Scripture, they say it's, it's too difficult to understand. Let's understand tonight that that's not God's desire. God desires for all people to understand His Word. And see, here we see a bunch of people who are involved in giving the sense of the Word of God and causing God's people to understand His words. In Matthew chapter 13, we see a story of when the disciples come to Christ and they ask Him, why do you speak in, in, in parables? And here, here's how, how it goes, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10. It says, And the disciples came and said unto Him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall, shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they see, see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And to them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, then I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and, and have, heard, have not heard them. Christ explains to them that the reason he's talking in parable is because he doesn't want the Pharisees to understand. Well, how can that be? Because he looks at their heart. And when he looks at the heart, he sees a bunch of people who have hardened their hearts. They're not open to receive God's word. And he says, listen, it's not that I have chosen some people that I want to show them the truth and I, I just don't like a bunch of others. That's not the case. The reason is because these people don't have the right attitude. And so God's desire is for us to understand the word. But let's understand tonight that it is a prerequisite that we have the right attitude towards God's word. And when we come with the right attitude, God will open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to understand his word. The key is our attitude towards the scripture. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 17. It says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that thy name and my name might be declared throughout all the world. I don't know if you paid attention at the first part of the verse. It says, the scripture saith 
unto Pharaoh. The scripture is having a conversation with Pharaoh. How can that be? The scripture is a book. How can a book have a conversation with Pharaoh? Unless it is alive. Unless it has the attributes of God. Unless we cannot understand God apart from his word. God is bound to his word and it is alive. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no human instrument that can divide the soul from the spirit, but the word of God can go there and it can discern the intents of the heart. The Word of God is alive. When we come to the Bible, the Bible is such a living Word that it can tell what kind of attitude do we have towards it. And if our attitude is that this is really not the Word of God, there are some mistakes in the Word of God, something that shouldn't be there, something that I can correct in there, then guess what? It will not reveal us the truth. That's not God's desire. God's desire is for us to understand the truth. However, we must start with the right attitude. We must come before the Word of God saying, Lord, show me the truth. And that's what these people do in, in, in Nehemiah. They take the words of God. They sit down with the people and they show them, this is what they mean. This is how this applies to your life. And that's the way it should be. Nehemiah chapter 9, and, or, or I'm sorry, I mean, uh, Psalms 138 verse 2 it says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy love and kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Needless to say that some modern translations don't like this fact and they change this verse because of the position that God gives to his word, that he has magnified him even above his name. And his name, according to Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 5, his glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. There is nothing above the name of God. The name of God is exalted above everything else. But God says, I have taken my word and placed it even above that. What kind of attitude should we have when we approach the word of God? 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I read this yesterday as well. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. We must approach the word of God with faith, with a humble attitude. And when we do, God will cause us to understand his words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 says, which things also we speak, not in the word, words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's how we understand the words of God. We go to the Bible understanding that it is not of private interpretation. It's not our word to interpret. God gives the interpretation. And we do this by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We compare the verses with one another, understanding there is no contradiction in the Bible. And thus God reveals to us the meaning of the word. Secondly, I want to say that a proper understanding of the word of God brings joy. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 9 and 10 says, And Nehemiah 
which is the Tushatha. And Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, hold your, hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. A proper understanding of the word of God will bring joy into our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. It is the second benefit we get from the Holy Spirit and its fruit in our lives is joy. No wonder many Christians don't have joy today because they don't have a proper understanding of the Word of God. There is nothing that can substitute the work of the Holy Spirit which brings supernatural joy in our lives. There is no chemicals that can reproduce what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. When we turn to the Word of God, He brings joy into our lives. A few years ago, I was reading through the Old Testament, and I was writing down every verse in the New Testament that gives a commandment. Now, the reason I was doing that is because I was talking to some brethren that had some strange ideas about what the church should do. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to go to the Bible, what we usually do, and I'm going to see what God commands us to do. Now, there might be something there that's a preference, but I want to find out every verse that's a commandment from God. So I was writing down every verse that's a commandment. And then I came to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, I had read this verse hundreds and hundreds of times. I had heard it preached hundreds and hundreds of times. What I had not noticed before is that this is a commandment. It's an imperative mood, which is a commandment. Now, the way I had always read it in my mind is that, listen, if you go to God and you take your concerns and, and, and your burdens to God, He will give you peace. But that's not what it says. It's, it's an order. It's a commandment. It says, be careful for nothing. That's what God commands us to do. And when we don't, we're disobeying a commandment. It's not just a benefit we get that, oh, when I'm burdened, I go to God and He gives me peace. God wants us to, and He commands us to. And when we do, He gives us joy, and He gives us peace. He doesn't take away the problems but he gives us his peace. A proper understanding of God's word will bring peace in, in our lives. In Luke chapter 24, where there is a story of Christ appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. And he shows them the scriptures. He opens the scriptures and teaches them how the whole Old Testament prophesied for the coming of Christ. And he opens their eyes, and in the end of the story, in verse 52, it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
What preceded that was Christ sitting down with them and showing them how all the scriptures applied to him. When he talked to the Pharisees, he says, you don't believe Moses, because if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because Moses wrote of me. The scriptures, they point us to Christ. And when we come, we have the proper understanding of them. It gives us joy. First John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. I wonder tonight, where do we look for joy? I wonder tonight if the lost world sees a joy in us that cannot explain otherwise but by God's presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The sad truth is the reason many of us don't have joy is because we don't have the right relationship. Because it is the fruit of the Spirit. And you cannot falsify the fruit of the Spirit. Biblical joy is not the absence of other emotions. You may be troubled in your heart. You may have all kinds of other issues and problems. But God is above all that. And His joy cannot be mistaken for anything else. Why would the world be attracted to Jesus if they don't see Christians living with joy? Where is the fruit of the Spirit? Philippians 1.25 says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance of joy and faith. That's Paul's heart. He says, man, I want to see the furtherance of your joy and faith. In the story of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, they have just returned from captivity. Old people remember the captivity and the cruel things that took place. And the, young, the younger people, they don't know anything about what the old temple looks like, looked like and the relationship and the history of God. There's a mixed crowd. Some people are crying probably because they remember what had happened before. And now they're hearing the words of God again. Some people may be crying because they hear those for the, words, for the first time. The Word of God ministers to all kinds of people. You don't have to have problems for the Word of God to minister unto you. But if you do, it has the power to. Thirdly, I want to say that a proper understanding of God's Word leads to evangelism. He says to them, in verse 10 again, he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a picture of evangelism. There is nothing that the world has prepared for the unsaved in the area of eternal salvation. Now, people may prepare a lot of things for the unsaved in this life, but when it comes to eternity, a lost person's only hope is the help of a Christian to give them the gospel. The world will never do that. No Christians are ever trumpeted as being heroes by the world for preaching the gospel. Can you imagine watching the news channel and all of a sudden they have important guests? Of course, they always have important guests to give their opinions about what's going on in the world and this and that. And all of a sudden, the speaker just stops him and says, we have breaking news. Such and such person has been saved and someone just witnessed to them. Can you, can you imagine that happening? 
That's what happens in heaven, by the way. The only thing to interrupt whatever is going on in heaven is the news that someone just got saved. Luke 15, uh, verse 10 says, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner that repenteth. 2 Timothy 4, 5 says, But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. A proper understanding of the Word of God will lead us to evangelism. No wonder when you see churches not involved in evangelism, you know what you can deduct from that? They don't have a proper understanding of the Word. Because if they did, they would obey. The fourth thing I want to say is that a proper understanding of the Word of God points to Christ's return. Verse, verse 13, it says, And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount, and fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees, to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth, and brought them, and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity, make booths, and set under the booths, for since the day, days of Joshua, the son of Nun, Unto, the day, unto that day, sorry, had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. And also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was the solemn assembly, according unto the matter. Out of all the feasts of Israel, God singles out one particular feast, the Feast of the Tabernacle. Both Paul and Peter use that word, the word tabernacle, to refer to their human bodies. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, internal in the heavens. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 14 says, Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. The Feast of the Tabernacle represents the time when the Lord put on a human tabernacle and came to the earth. That's when the first coming of Christ is. It's not December 20... I'm sorry, should I say that? Uh, okay, I have no children in here. Okay. It's not in December. It's in September. That's when the Lord... He took on a tabernacle. He came down from heaven on a human body. And that's when the second coming of Christ is. No wonder God singles out this particular feast. And they see this in the scripture and say, nobody has done this. We haven't obeyed this. And they obey the word of the Lord. Every time you look at someone walking with the Lord, the Lord points them to Christ. And he points them to the second coming of Christ, which is the day that God the Father awaits to see his son in the glory that he deserves. We see that in 
Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preaches the greatest message in the history of Israel. And he says, when they heard these things, they were cut to their heart, in verse 54. And they gnashed their teeth on him, on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the, hand, on the right hand of God. We know from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we know that Jesus, after he finished his work on the cross, he sat down because he was the high priest. And the high priest in the Old Testament, it was a job, there was no, nowhere for them to sit down because this was something they had to repeat over and over and over again. But Jesus he finished his work once and for all. His blood is enough. It doesn't have to be repeated again. He made the ultimate sacrifice. And when he did, he sat down. But in Acts, we see him standing up. And Stephen, God opens his eyes in the middle of a crowd that are about to kill him, and they do. And he sees Jesus. It's a picture of the second coming of Christ and his coming in, in glory. And God points his eyes. When a man is not focused on the circumstances, God points his eyes to the second coming of Christ, to the coming of Christ in glory. That's what a proper understanding of the Word of God does. No wonder so many churches are messed up doctrinally because they don't, un they don't understand the second coming of Christ. They don't understand the events of the, of the end times. Why? Because they don't have a proper understanding of the Word of God. A proper understanding of the Word of God will lead you to properly understand what God has on His calendar, what the main theme of the Bible is. And it's not us. It's Christ. Now, we are great beneficiaries of His work, by the way. But God the Father awaits for the day when His Son will sit on the throne of glory because he deserves it. And only a proper understanding of the word of God can give that unto you. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We only have two options. If we don't rightly divide the word, we will wrongly divide it. If you don't believe that every word of God is pure, that we can hold in our hands, we will not see these truths from the scripture. Let me give you some examples. I gave some last night. I would love to give you another one. Let's look at the word follow. Matthew 4:19, Jesus for he saith unto them, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." That's the first interaction of Christ with his disciples, and he tells them, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." Now in the modern Bibles, this has been translated different ways, like "Come along with me," come after me, and various other ways. In, in the King James, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul continues the same narrative, and he says, be followers of me. Do you remember how Jesus told his disciples to follow him? Okay, now you follow me, even as I also am of Christ. And other translations of the Bible don't use the word follow, they use the word imitator. 
An imitator is someone who just mimics what you do. They don't care who you are. They don't care about your intentions or your heart. They just mimic. That's what the devil is. He's an imitator. He's not a follower of Christ. But he mimics what Christ does to mess people up, especially through religion. Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. It begins with Christ. He says, follow me. The Apostle Paul says, follow me as I also follow Christ. And it continues to say, you follow the faith of those who have preached or have spoken unto you the word of God. Again, this has been translated different ways, mostly imitating. We shouldn't imitate. You know, in the uh, factories that produce certain things, you know, the, they have like a pattern, the cookie cutter type, type uh, situation, where they produce the, whole, the same thing. Unfortunately, the same thing goes on in Christianity, where sometimes you see preachers imitating other preachers. Sometimes even their gestures. <laughs> that's, that's not what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to follow, not to imitate. The mess that people get into when they make idols of the people they imitate. Christ says, you follow their faith because they're human beings. They can mess up. They're people too. But make sure that if they are in the faith, you follow that. Don't imitate. 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers are also be, also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Satan has ministers. They appear as angels of light, but that's not who they are. They're imitators. They're not followers. They don't submit to the word, but they look good. The only way you can tell the difference is the word. And finally, I want to say that a proper understanding of the word of God requires a response. What happens in the story is that all, verse 17, all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths, they, they obeyed. And also in verse 18, that day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. We see that the results of, of what God did in the life of Israel at this point in their history is only because they responded to God's word. And it had an impact on the whole congregation day by day. We can't be neutral when it comes to God's word and his ministry. We, will, we are about to embark on a mission that will impact a whole nation and other surrounding nations all over the world. This task is intimidating and the attacks of the devil have already begun at full force. And many times we feel inadequate to be involved in this. 
I want to tell you a story, something that the Lord used about nine years ago. And it taught, taught me a view on how to deal with this situation and taught me something that I had read in the Bible and I had understood intellectually, but I had never understood it in a practical way, in the way I did in the day that it happened. In the summer of 2012, it was our 10-year anniversary. And uh, by the way, I'll continue the story, but does my wife look good on that traditional costumes? She's taking orders, by the way, if you're... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> For our 10-year anniversary, we, we, we go to Paris to celebrate. And, uh, of course, one of the attractions in Paris is, is the Louvre, the art museum. And so for people that don't understand anything about art, which is me, the only thing they know is the Mona Lisa is there, right? Are there any, anyone else here in the same category? They have a lot of great art there, a lot of great paintings for centuries and artifacts, just amazing stuff. But, you know, people who... I took an art appreciation class, and I learned to appreciate them, but still, I was hooked on seeing the Mona Lisa. So we go there, and this thing is huge. I had no idea how huge it is, but they had several ground uh, floors underground, just miles and miles. I'm in a wheelchair, my wife is pushing me around, and I'm just bugging her the whole time. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we go room after room after room, and after seven hours, we get to the room where the Mona Lisa is. I had been waiting for that moment. I tell you, I was so excited. And we have some, I've taken some pictures. These are not my pictures, but what it, what it looks like. Um, so here's what it looks like in an empty room. Okay? Now, the next slide is that it never looks that way. <laughs> here's how it always looks. We talked to some of the people that work there, said, it doesn't matter if it's a high season, low season, this room has no low season. It's always crowded. You can't, you can't hardly move in there. It was so crowded. And I was so discouraged, man. I was like, I'm never going to be able to see her. You know, it's was, it was like, you know, I don't know what to do. And so here's some more pictures of what it looks like. So we're trying to make our way through and not bumping into people's heels and, and all of that. It happened a few times, but, you know, we're trying. So, And then as we approach, as we get close, here's a staff member, somebody who worked there, and she's like, Monsieur, I, I don't know what the rest of it, but this is like, come over here. I don't speak French. <laughs> so what happened was there was a space there right before the Mona Lisa for people with disabilities. I had no idea that this existed. So here we go, everybody's right behind there, and I'm the only one. My wife takes me and places me right in front of her. It was like a few feet away. I could not believe what was happening. And so as I'm standing there, I'm, I'm watching her, you know, as, and then I'm like, oh man, I'm just fascinated by the whole experience of it. And then I noticed that she was just, I mean, she kept following me with my eyes, you know, and she kept looking at me and staring at me. And I was like, my wife is right here. She's right in front of us. And I said, 
come over here, come over here. This is getting creepy. <laughs> she's like, what do you mean? I said, she can't, she's staring at me. She's not taking her eyes off of me. I've been watching. She was like, honey, that's what every man thinks, okay? So... <laughs> I said, I'm serious. I was over there. She was staring at me. And then she was like, relax. She started staring at you after you first stared at her. <laughs> I was like, I don't know which one was first, but she's, she's doing it again right now. I was like, I'm not comfortable with this. And she's like, that's what you wanted to say. You wanted to see her. You know, I've been pushing you for seven hours. Here we are. Now enjoy it, you know. <laughs> I told that story years ago in uh, our church in Tirana, and a young guy comes up after me, after the service to me, and, and uh, he says, dude, you didn't know that the Mona Lisa follows you with her eyes? <laughs> I said, dude, you didn't know I have a sense of humor? <laughs> That's all you got out of the story? No. <laughs> Now, the reason I tell the story is this. That day I realized something. The only reason I was able to have that experience is because of my weakness. If I didn't have my weakness, I would have no chance I would be one of any in the crowd. Obviously, you can see that I have a physical disability. And over and over again, people come to me and they say, how do you do it? And I tell them the same thing. I had learned this from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather joy in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I knew that verse. I had read that verse hundreds of times. And the experience of what just happened made me realize I don't care that I'm weak. I have a promise from the Lord that His grace is sufficient. And I'm going to rest in that grace because that's the only explanation that one can get. It's not of our strength. Let me encourage you tonight. You may be here and you may see yourself as weak, inadequate. You're in the right category. The Lord is looking for you so you can surrender unto Him and He can do a mighty work. A proper understanding of the Word of God will bring about fruits in our lives that can only be explained by God's presence and God's work. And God's work.